0: Uh, Before we get into our sermon today, uh, I wanted to take a moment just to kind of set the course, kind of give you a framework, give you a lay of the land for what we will be doing in this season of Advent. And the season of Advent is uh, four weeks. And so what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to really take a clear Look at John chapter six, verses thirty-seven through seventy-one. Uh, we're going to really double-click here on this section of Scripture, uh, looking at uh, what it has to say. Uh, we'll break it down into four sections of study that are going to then lead us to Christmas Day. That we will look at the Nativity narrative in Luke chapter two, and. Oh, there's a lot of reasons why we're taking such a, um, a detailed look at this section of Scripture. Uh, it's one of the most significant portions of Scripture, in my opinion, uh, for uh, believers to understand how they became believers. Uh, second, uh, there are over six times uh, that in Jesus talks about his coming to earth in some regard. In this section of scripture, about six times or so that he says, this is why I came. This is the point of the incarnation, why I came to earth. <clears throat> so as we find ourselves in the Advent season, as we uh, look back to the first coming of Christ and we look forward to the second coming as believers, knowing that he will return, he will come again as The king. Uh, And there will be a complete and utter uh, just showing of his lordship. And so uh, I want us to just really take this time and pray and ask God to help us uh, to really see Christ for who he is, to really uh, look at the beauties of the incarnation uh, through John chapter 6, through this section of John chapter 6. And Uh, Really, I I encourage you to pray that the Lord would open your eyes, He would open your your mind, your heart to seeing and uh, just enjoying Jesus during this season, uh, maybe even higher than you have done in past Christmas seasons. So uh, today we're going to look at John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. John chapter 6, 37 through 40 Uh, Turn there. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back. We would love for you to take one of those. It's our gift to you. Uh, I'll be teaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version, Um, and would love for you to be able to follow along so you can see the words of Scripture. So John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, I'm going to read this for us, and then I'm going to pray and ask God's help as we begin today John chapter 6 37 would you hear the word of God all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to look at your word, uh, to study this portion of scripture that has just drastic implications on the way that we live. Father, I pray that you would use this time for our good and for your glory. Father, we need your help. Uh, Spirit, would you apply uh, this passage in the way that is appropriate to each individual here? Would you bring uh, just comfort to those that are heavy laden? Uh, Would you humble those that are maybe arrogant in this moment, thinking that uh, they need nothing of what your word has to offer? Father, we need you, so we ask what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us, and what we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory. And God's people said, amen. So in life, there are many things that we plan that don't go according to plans. Uh, Maybe a trip that you might plan, or maybe getting here this morning. Uh, You had a plan laid out. You had everything. You had your clothes laid out. Uh, You knew what you were going to wear. You had everything in order. You, You planned it just the way that you thought it should go down. And things didn't turn out exactly how you planned. Maybe thinking back to your Thanksgiving holiday. Maybe you planned to cook an elaborate meal. Maybe it was your first time cooking. And some of the things just didn't turn out exactly the way that you expected, not exactly the way that you planned. I mean, there's many different things that we can look at in our own lives and we can say that, hey, you know what? I planned for this to happen, but it didn't go exactly the way that I planned. What happens is that we often wrongly use our failed experiences to measure God's ability to accomplish a goal. We look at what we've experienced and we say, you know what? Well, that must be the way that it is with God. Last week when we left off in verse 36 of this section of Scripture, Jesus tells the crowd that has gathered, that has chased him down from the point of feeding the 5,000. Remember, Jesus walks on water, and now this crowd has followed Jesus to the other side of the sea. Jesus tells this crowd. He says, I say to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Essentially what Jesus says here is that They have witnessed miracles. They have heard him preach. They have literally looked in the face of Jesus Christ, but they don't believe. They don't believe in him. Or in other words, they're they're not saved. They, They will not come to a belief that would cause salvation. Now, first read, this sounds like a failed mission, doesn't it? It sounds like that the the mission that Jesus set out to do has failed. Sounds like poor execution, which resulted then in a failed plan. Sounds like Jesus' ambition exceeded his ability to accomplish an intended goal. I know that happens with me often. Brothers and sisters, here today we quickly see that God's plan of salvation is the plan that has not And will not ever fail. See, what we see today in our text is that salvation is a gift that is planned and preserved forever. Let me say that again salvation is a gift that is planned and preserved forever. See, although Jesus has just confirmed this crowd's unbelief, he immediately informs them that their unbelief does not negate God's plan of salvation. So just because you don't believe doesn't mean that none will believe. Remember the crowd asked earlier in verse 28, right, that what do we have to do to do the work of God? And remember what Jesus tells them. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus lays out human responsibility. He says, your responsibility is to believe. He says, the work that man does is believing in the one who was sent, namely Jesus Christ. He says, just believe. But they don't do that. They will not believe. And the reason why is because, listen, man cannot accomplish belief alone. Man cannot generate the belief needed to trust in Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior. Brothers and sisters, we need God to intervene. We need help. We need something to happen. We need Christ. As we look at this text, I want to point out three characteristics of Christ regarding the plan and preservation of salvation. Three characteristics. Here they are. I'll give them to you, and then we'll look at them. The first characteristics we'll see is the confidence of Christ. The confidence of Christ. Second, we'll see the intentionality of Christ. The intentionality Of Christ. Third, we will see so gloriously the protection of Christ, the protection of Christ. Now, let me give you just a quick preface here. Uh, I'm going to spend the most time on the first and the third. So, if you don't don't uh, weigh everything by how long we're or how long we'll be here, uh, based upon just the first point, Um, I want you to stay tuned in there. Uh, make sure that you don't, you don't get lost here uh, in framework of the confidence of Christ. But we will quickly see here as we look at verse 37, the confidence of our Savior. See, Jesus Christ has a confidence that is above and beyond anything that man could have. Here's what Jesus says. Look at verse 37. He says, all that the Father Gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, stop right there. I want you to just think about the glorious truth that is found in that scripture. I mean, here we have one of the most profound verses in all of the Bible. This sentence tells us of our Lord's great confidence when faced with unbelievers. Jesus shows no sign of worry here. Uh, Jesus is not uh, taken back by their unbelief. Instead, here, Jesus confidently states that the plan of salvation set forth by the Father is fail-proof. There's nothing that can take away this plan. He definitively says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Here Jesus teaches a simple yet complex truth. Despite human failure and sinful rebellion, God's sovereign grace provides a people for his son. And it's all of his grace. This is why Jesus is not shocked by their unbelief. He's not worried about their questioning. Jesus doesn't go back to the drawing board here. He doesn't say, well, hey, maybe next time instead of fish, we'll do some steaks. Like, Like that'll really get them. Maybe that'll draw them in. He doesn't change the plan. He doesn't go back and say, okay, well, I should have done something different here. No, here we see a confident Savior. He knows that he has been set out to accomplish a goal. And that goal is death on a cross that will fully redeem a people given to him by his father in eternity past. Now, here we see one of the clearest examples of the great doctrine of unconditional election. I mean, we see it just, it's here. Let me give you a definition of unconditional election for you to wrap your mind around this great doctrine, uh, R.C. Sproul's definition, I think, is very helpful and simple. R.C. Sproul had a very uh, easy, or uh, very great, way of just making complex truths simple to understand. And so, here's what he says: I quote, "God does not foresee an action or condition on our part that induces Him to save us." In other words, like we didn't do anything. To earn salvation. He says, rather, election rests on God's sovereign decision to save whomever he is pleased to save. End quote. And how is unconditional election shown here, you might ask? Well, Jesus says, every one that the Father gives to him will come notice that he doesn't say that everyone that comes the father will give to him he says everyone that has been given to me by my father in eternity past will come brothers and sisters understanding this order is massively important for our theological framework We must understand this because it affects so many areas of our lives. Listen, once you realize that you're a Christian because God the Father gave you to God the Son, it changes everything. It changes the way you view salvation. It changes the way you sing praises to your great God. It it changes the way that you live your lives daily. Martin Luther once said, He to whom God gives grace to come to Christ enjoys a great privilege which lets him exult. The Father has given me to Christ. Brothers and sisters, let that sink in. If you're a Christian, you have been given to Jesus by God the Father. See, I personally believe that one of the main reasons that this doctrine is so hard to comprehend and is rejected by so many is because this doctrine just pushes against all human pride. Because this says, you can't do anything. It says that you were never good enough. It says that there's nothing within you that forced God to save you. It just presses against everything within us. It it presses against the fact that would say, hey, we, we, we somehow, like, we figured it out, but they didn't. You know, this is the reason why, you know, I, I'm here and I'm a Christian is because, you know, I, I figured it out and, and, and I've just got the, the key to understanding who God is and, you know, too bad that you don't. It pushes against any human sign of anything good within us that would cause God to save us. Outside of our text, the Bible is full of passages that underscore this beautiful truth. Uh, we read one earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read it again for us, uh, just uh, verses 4 through 6. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, who was to him, Jesus Christ. Christ and in love, in love, not out of any type of uh, coercion on any type of human motivation. Rather, he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? Whose will? His will. He does this. It's for his good pleasure that he would give a people to his son. Uh, In Acts 13, 48, when Paul and Barnabas are preaching in Antioch and and people are responding to the preaching, we read verse 48, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed that praise be to God. Those that were predestined, that were chosen were then they were preached to, they heard the gospel, and those people responded to the gospel of second Timothy 1:9 who saved us, Jesus, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Romans eight twenty nine For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn ab- among many brothers, Those whom he, here's the golden chain that many of you are familiar with, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorifies. When does all of this happen? In eternity past. He he chooses. He chooses a people. He says, these are going to be the gift to my son. I mean, there are many more passages. The Bible is just chock full of passages that speak of this great truth. The Old Testament speaks of this. I mean, Abraham, Noah, David, um, Jacob, the, the people of Israel, they didn't do anything to earn God's blessing. God chose them. He set his love upon them. He makes a covenant with them. They're all chosen by God because of God's mercy and God's grace, not because of their good works, not because of their good deeds. Read the Bible. It's full of mistakes. People mess it up over and over again. But what do we rely on? God's faithfulness. God's intentionality. If you want a complete treatment on unconditional election, read Romans 9 later. Okay, read that. I didn't go there uh, today because uh, it, it, you can't read it without really giving a full-on explanation of it. Read Romans 9. You will see it clearly. But here in John six thirty-seven, Jesus really summarizes this extraordinary truth in one sentence when he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Brothers and sisters, why are you a Christian? Maybe you never knew why you became a Christian. Maybe you have been a faithful follower of Christ for many years. You've never understood, like, how did I come? There were many things that may have happened to to get you to the point of response. But ultimately and finally, you are a Christian because guess what? God said, I'm going to give them to my son. God determined that you would be Christian. Jesus shows his gift or his confidence here in the gift that's been given to him. He says, they're going to come. Like, this work is not in vain. Why I am here is, is not in vain. See, the giving grounds the coming. It's, it's the giving that is the, the root of the coming to Christ. It all finds its place there, that God the Father would give a people to his son. Now, there's many misconceptions about election that I want to just quickly address before we move on to our second point. First, some say, well, if unconditional election is true, especially in the way that I just described it, then why do we need to evangelize? Should we evangelize? Do we need to evangelize? I mean, if Jesus says everyone that is supposed to come is going to come, then why does it matter what we do? Why should we tell anyone about Jesus? And listen, that's a very valid question for a number of reasons. One being that some have abused this doctrine to teach just that, that we we don't, that hey, the elect will come and we should not have any uh, missions or evangelism, Um, that's that's called hyper-Calvinism. We reject that. That is not the truth of Scripture. We are told to, to go, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those that have been predestined to believe will hear and believe. We go. Jesus commands us to go, right? Go. Make disciples. We must tell. If you were here during our uh, distinction series when we talked through uh, missions and uh, what it looks like to be a church that evangelizes, we looked at Romans chapter 10 where Paul uh, clearly just explains this truth in in very um, certain terms. That he says, how will they hear if no one goes? And then he goes on to say, blessed are the feet, beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news of Christ. Listen, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. We must tell people about the good news of Jesus. So Jesus commands us to evangelize. Uh, Furthermore, the New Testament is full of preaching, evangelism, and missions. I mean, that's what's happening. Uh, That's how the early church uh, spread. It's how uh, the, the church expanded, and it's how it continues to spread and expand today. We share the good news. See, Instead of unconditional election being a roadblock to evangelism and missions, it should be an encouragement. It should be an encouragement and motivation for us. Because here's why. Because we know that there are people that will respond. We know that our work is not in vain. We know that the work that we do, the proclamation that we give will produce fruit by the will of God. It may not be on our terms. It may not be exactly who we thought or want it to be. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged that your work, your evangelism, your efforts, missions are not in vain. God has ordained us, allowed us to take part in the wondrous gift of sharing the good news of Christ. Won't we go and do that? It's an opportunity. We share. The Spirit works, regenerates. People respond. They come to him. So in the same way that Jesus displays the utmost confidence in his mission, we too can have confidence that our evangelistic labors will produce fruit. Because listen, they are based on God's ability and God's plan, not ours. If it was based on my ability, man, we would all be in trouble. It's based on him. It is God's work. But we must be intentional. We must go and tell. This is exactly what Jesus demonstrates to uh, to us here in verse 38, as we see the intentionality of Christ enacting on the plan of salvation. Look with me at verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. So right after Jesus tells this crowd of people that his complete confidence is in the plan of salvation, he has a complete confidence in his ability to redeem those who were given to him by God the Father, He proceeds to tell them that he has intentionally come down from heaven to do the will of the Father. And listen, as we approach Christmas, we must remember that the incarnation did not happen by accident. It wasn't just something that just randomly occurred. It wasn't an exploratory mission like, hey, let's go see if we can find some people that will follow me. Uh, It wasn't a casual endeavor where God the Father and God the Son were sitting around one day talking and said, Hey, let's go see what being a human is like. This was intentional. There was an intentional focus, intentional mission. Jesus says, I've come to do something, I've come for a specific purpose. I have come to do my Father's will. Turn over with me quickly to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And I just want to read verses 18 through 21 for us as we think of the incarnation of Christ here. Verse 18 reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So the Holy Spirit has produced a child. Joseph is thinking, okay, hey, I'm going to, it's, I know this is not my child, so I'm going to leave her. But as he considered these things, verse twenty, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived is her. In her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." And here, here we go. He will save his people from their sins. Who's he going to save? His people. Who did he come to save? His people. He came to save his people. And who were his people? All that the Father has given to him. He came with an intentional focus. He came on mission. So Jesus Christ, the preeminent, preexistent Son of God, intentionally comes down from heaven in accordance with the Father's eternal plan of redemption. And he doesn't come to simply see what the world has to offer Jesus doesn't come to do his own thing or take a vacation from heaven. He comes to save. He comes on a mission to redeem those given to him from the bondage and grip of sin and death by dying the death that they deserve so that we can live eternally with him. Praise be to God. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, Jesus came for you. He came to save you. There's intentionality there. And what joy to know that the Father gave you to Jesus. And when the Father gave you to Jesus, Jesus said, I will go and I will get them. I will free them. From the bondage, their slavery to sin, the consequence of their sin, death, I will become the sacrifice that could fully atone and fully appease the righteous wrath of God. Jesus Christ took that upon himself. If you're a Christian, he did it intentionally. Jesus says there's nothing that can nullify my work. There's there's nothing that can nullify this. And he wants people here to have an assurance of their salvation. He, He wants them to see that they are protected by his work. And we see that here in verses 39 through 40 as we look at the protection of Christ in preserving the plan of salvation. Look at verse 39 with me. So he's just said, I came to do the will of the Father. And he says now, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Let's stop right there. So after telling the crowd that he is confident in the plan of salvation and pointing to his intentionality to the plan, Jesus proceeds to explain the will of the Father here. He says the Father's will is that I will lose none of those that he has given to me. Brothers and sisters, this verse tells us that every member of God's elect, God's family, the church, the bride of Christ, whatever language you want to use there, those that were given to the son by the father before the foundations of the world will never be lost. You're safe and secure in the protection of your Savior. Praise God for that reality. Here, Jesus bases the, the promise of protection on the fact that it is the Father's will that he doesn't lose anyone. It's the will of the Father. He says it's his will that those that have been given to me will never be lost and he promises to protect and keep the gift that is given to him because it's it's good it's the father's will the father wants him to have this gift you ever been given a, a gift that you just cherish something that you really appreciate Something that you love dearly for parents, maybe it's, you know, little, little cards or different uh, writings or drawings that your kids maybe have given to you. Maybe you've got a box uh, full of those and you've, you've held on to them for years and you've, you've cherished those things no matter uh, what they look like. It, it, you cherish them. They're, they're a gift. Or maybe it's something that you received at one time that, that you, you cherished, you, you loved, that you, you wanted to keep, and you, you took care of it, and you made sure that nothing happened to it. Here, similarly, but infinitely better, Jesus Christ says, I will protect and preserve those that were given to me. This gift that I've received will be protected. I will keep them forever. Listen, brothers and sisters, people lose things. Jesus doesn't. He never has and he never will. He will always keep those that have been given to him, Listen, if you're a Christian, you will continue to be a Christian because Jesus says you were given to him and he will never lose you. He will keep you. He will hold you. Earlier in verse 37, Jesus said that all the Father has given me will come and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The astute reader uh, probably asks, why did you not hit on that? Because it applies here. He says, I will never cast them out. If they come to me, they've come because of the Father's will, the Father's plan, they are my gift, and I'm not going to cast them out. They're going to be mine forever. I will protect them. I will preserve them. And here's a reiteration of that truth. Jesus gives us a further explanation in John chapter 10, when speaking to the Jewish leaders that I just want to read for us. We'll we'll get to that uh, months uh, down the road when we get to John chapter 10. But uh, I just want to read this for us because I think it's a helpful connection here. But here's how he further explains this. He says, speaking to the Jewish leaders in John chapter 10, he says, I told you and you do not believe. Very similar to what we've been reading here. He says, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because... Why? You are not among my sheep. You're not a part of the flock that was given to me. He says in verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the the Father are one. He says, I've got them. They're in my hand. I will protect them. Now listen, this doesn't mean that people can continue living in sin, habitual, unrepentant sin, and think because they said a prayer five years ago, five months ago, that everything is okay. We will be known by the fruits we produce, we will be known by our works. Works are not the root of our salvation, but good works are indeed the fruit of our salvation. Those that are truly saved will live different, they will talk different, they will respond different, their desires change. What once was beautiful to them in terms of sinful behavior becomes distasteful. They hate their sin. That's the sign of the new birth. That's the sign of regeneration. Do we still stumble? Do we still sin? Yes, we are not fully perfected on this side of eternity. But when we sin, we run to Christ We repent, we confess, we we turn away from sinful behaviors and we ask God, change me. I need you to work. I need you to do what I cannot do and change me. And then we make every effort we can to change. Jesus says, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, do whatever it takes to flee from sin. You better take that serious sin destroys continuing to walk in unrepentant sin will take you straight down the path of destruction there's no clearer way to say it we must look to Christ we must wage war on our sin. And brothers and sisters, our fighting is what shows that we are still his. Our fighting that we do not give up, that there's even one ounce in you that says, I despise this sin, is a sign of God's faithfulness to you, that he would protect you, That he would care for you. Brothers and sisters, then we must too care for ourselves. We must care for our own holiness. We must care for our own lives. We must care for those around us. But he says here, I won't lose anyone. All that are mine will be mine. I will keep them. And this isn't just temporary keeping. It isn't just for a little while. Look at what he says. Look at the second part of verse 39. So after saying, I won't lose them, he says, but, but here's what I will do. I will raise it, and it here would mean like the full body of Christ or the full person. We, we talked about this a, a few uh, weeks ago, uh, the bodily resurrection that we read of earlier. Earlier, everyone will be raised again, some to the judgment of destruction, some to the judgment of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Amen. And here he says, I'm going to raise them up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. Not temporary, not a vacation, eternal life. And he says again, I will, in case you, you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to raise them up on the last day. I will raise them up. They are mine, eternally secured. I mean, there are eternal implications here, brothers and sisters. Jesus says, I raise them up on the last day because Everyone that is the Father's that has given to me. If he's given them to me, I will keep them, and I will keep them for eternity. They're mine. Everyone that God the Father appointed to eternal life will have it. I will do the work. Brothers and sisters, true Christians will always be Christians from now to all eternity. It never ends. Some may ask, well, what about those that walk away from the faith? Some that may have once professed Christianity and said, I'm a Christian, but now they no longer follow Jesus Christ. They've denounced the faith. Well, John, the gospel writer here, he he writes uh, an epistle. He writes a few. And in his first epistle in 1 John two nineteen, he clears this up for us. Here's what he says to those that were dealing with the same type of situation. He says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then guess what? They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Essentially, he says, listen, they left because they were never a part of the plan to begin with. They were fair weather believers. They were temporal achievers. They were those that said, I like the God that does all of the great things and provides all my physical needs Here and now, I don't like the God that tells me I've got to carry my cross and make war on sin and live with little and go to the nations and preach the gospel and cross the street and tell my neighbor that God loves them and that if they would respond to the gospel, they would show themselves to be elect and God would call them to glorious, eternal salvation. They don't like that God. So they run away. They turn away. They choose their sin over their holiness. They continue to focus in on worldly pleasures and desires rather than godly desires. They choose the world over Christ. They choose the approval of man rather than the approval of God. But brothers and sisters, true saints will preserve to the end. We can know this because Jesus promises this. He assures this. There is no losing true salvation. Let me say that again. There is no losing true salvation. God the Father gave you to Jesus, and Jesus promises to keep you Forever. And this is just such good news for us. This is such good news for anyone struggling with doubts or assurance of salvation. God has you, He will keep you. This summer, when my family and I were at the beach, my uh, two of our kids, two of my boys, they they like to, to go out in the water and, you know, stand by the waves. And for some reason uh, during this time, uh, the, the waves were, were, were pretty rough. And so we went down anyway and we said, okay, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll go down. And I was holding on to my kids and one of my sons, uh, he thought that it was a better idea for him to hold on to me. And so he kept letting go of my hand and kind of pushing it off. And, and then he would, you know, he'd want to be the one. He didn't want my hand on his arm gripping him. But he wanted to hold on to my hand. So I said, okay, I'll give you a little moment here and we'll see how that works out. Wave came and s- smashed, right? And, and he's, he's rolling back and... He's, you know, eyes are big and wide, and he's, you know, and I reach down and I pick him up. And I reach down to him and I said, hey buddy, it's a lot better when daddy holds you. I have a better grip. And then after that, he let me hold him. <laughs> and he enjoyed the waves. He absorbed the waves in much different circumstances when he knew that daddy was holding him. And brothers and sisters, that is the comfort that we can have when we understand that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is holding on to us. No matter what waves smack us in the face, even when we think like, oh, I got it, I got this one, And we get washed away. And then we look up all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed like, what just happened? Jesus says, no, I've got you. And then he holds us. He keeps us. Brothers and sisters, God is holding you. And if you're not a believer today, I would urge you, I pray that you would turn to Christ, that you would repent of your sins today, and that you would have confidence in this assurance of salvation, knowing that there's a God who knows you, who loved you, and loves you so much that he sent his Son to die for you, to secure you for all eternity. Let us live in that glorious truth that salvation is a gift. It's planned and preserved for eternity's sake. Let us pray. Father, would you open our eyes, would you open our hearts to respond to the glorious truth of your word, that those that are in here this morning struggling with doubts, Lord, would they see the, the little bit of fight that they have left in them is all on account of your goodness and grace? Would those in here this morning that do not know you, that are continuing to walk down the broad path that leads to destruction. God, would you work in their hearts in this moment for your glory? Would you save? Would you regenerate? Would you provide the new birth that is needed to obtain eternal security with you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.